I just love boxing. I love the art of it. I love getting in there. I love what it's taught about myself, self-love, self-confidence, hard work, dedication, resilience. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. 24-year-old Harry Garside just won Australia's first Olympic boxing medal in 33 years. Harry's a knockabout bloke, his father's a roof tiler and he works as a plumber. He's no ordinary boxer. Harry trains in ballet, painted his fingernails ahead of the Olympics and loves to talk about vulnerability, risk-taking and personal improvement. And perhaps characteristic of Harry, he hasn't been out of the news since he returned home. Uh, there's been a couple of stories about him. One about his uh, generous gesture of giving up his business class seat to team coach Kevin Smith on the flight home from Tokyo. And another one about his having hosted an illegal gathering in Melbourne, which uh, turned out to be a particularly expensive way of uh, running a welcome, welcome home party. Uh, Harry, welcome to the Good Life podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, mate. <laughs> so you started boxing at age nine. What got you into the sport? Yeah, so I have two answers for this question. And the first one, I watched too many Rocky films, which is 100% correct. And the second long answer is I have two older brothers and a dad who's very old-fashioned, brothers who were really manly. And I think I started boxing because I was nothing like them and I wanted to gain respect respect from the males in my life. So and then fell in love with the sport within the first week. Was it about self-defence? I mean, my only uh, experience of combat sports is I spent a few years doing hap keto and, and that was all kind of motivated by sort of being, wanting to be able to look after myself in, uh, in a tough situation. Was there any of that in nine-year-old Harry? Uh, of course, there's an element of that, but I think the biggest thing was self-confidence, um, something that I lacked a little bit. I, I definitely seemed confident on the outside, but deep down, I really wasn't that confident. Um, so when I started the sport and my coach, Brian Levy, who's still my coach today, he fed me with a lot of things like positivity, like you're going to be world champion, you are so good. And I started like believing this and there was like, all this positive affirmation that he was feeding me with and I started believing it. So that was probably the thing that I was attracted to the most. It's a pretty special thing to, uh, to give to a kid, isn't it? That notion that, uh, that you, you can succeed. Uh, but then you stepped into the boxing ring for the first time at age 12 when it was uh, legal to start fighting and uh, you didn't do so, do so well in your first bout. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, actually, almost got stopped. So the referee almost jumped in. He didn't, thank God. So I finished the fight, but had tears rolling down my face. And I'm thinking, why am I doing this stupid sport? Um, but, you mean, the love for the sport was there. And as I mentioned before, my coach was pivotal in making me who I am now. So he made me, fed me a lot of things. And I was believing all these things, even though I wasn't having much success early on. We all have setbacks, but. Losing a, a fight as a combat sporter must be a, a, a combat sport participant must be a particularly hard one. How do you uh, come back after after losing a fight? Because you lost more than half of uh, of, of your, your first eighteen fights, didn't you? Yeah, exactly right. I definitely didn't have much success, mate. But the love for the sport was there, and I truly do love the sport. Like 
for me, it's like meditation. My brain works a million miles an hour, but when I'm inside that ring, the whole world stops. So, like, that's what I'm addicted to. And I have fun. That's the most important. Have fun. I love the sport. Any success after that is just a bonus. You know what I mean? Like, I'm doing it because I love it. I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. I'm doing it because I'm always having fun doing it. Like, that's the only reason I do it. Any, any success is just a bonus. Well, there's fun, and then there's also trying to avoid being punched in the head, right? I mean, I, I'm assuming even in that youth stage, it does it does hurt. Of course, absolutely. But I think as well, the adrenaline's pumping. I played all sport growing up, and, and the reality is, mate, I, I got more hurt. I got put in hospital playing football in under nines. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I've never been put in hospital besides for, like, cuts getting stitched up. I've never been put in hospital for boxing, so... Um, you definitely get hurt in all sports. And I think boxing, like, it's one versus one. You're not coming up against someone like in AFL football, someone who's completely different size, who's bigger than you, and you have to compete against them. In boxing, it's very even, evenly matched, and it's very safe. Yeah, it, it certainly feels safer when I watch boxing at, at your weight. I think you you boxed uh, was 63 kilos at, uh, at, at the Olympics than it does when you look at the heavyweights. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which I feel like both you and a heavyweight boxer are walking into the ring with a, a similar... Um, similar protection around your brain, um, but in your case, you're much less likely to walk out with a serious brain injury than, than a heavyweight boxer. It really does seem to be undertaking quite a, quite a different level of risk, right? A hundred percent, absolutely. The reality is like in all sports, as I mentioned before, AFL, football, even soccer, there was studies showing from headball uh, in the, um, the head, uh, the, the soccer ball, sorry. Like there is damage from that, your brain is in water. Your brain's not supposed to get hit. So, but the reality is, mate, ninety-nine percent of boxes come out untouched and and they live a normal life. There is, of course, that one or two percent that that have long-term effects, but pretty small, if you ask me, to be honest. So, uh, and the other the other strange thing about boxing to me too is uh, is the gloves, right? Uh, you know, we sort of take it for granted because we're used to watching boxers with gloves, but. Um, it's always struck me that the gloves do two things. Firstly, they take away some of the pain of hitting the other person. Secondly, they, they massive incre- massively increase the power of hitting someone else. Uh, I feel like at least at that heavyweight level, boxing would be a whole lot safer if they didn't, uh, didn't have gloves. Yeah, there's an element of that for sure, but I also think like our hands, you mean, aren't made for, to punch things. Like... There's so many hand injuries in boxing and stuff like that. So I can understand why they wear the gloves and to protect the hands. And and it is a little bit of added cushion, you know what I mean? I think if they were just doing bare knuckle boxing, which is actually a thing that is, which has come, come pretty popular recently, bare knuckle boxing in England and stuff like that. And there's some serious injuries that come from that. So I'm pretty grateful that they wear gloves to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you... you uh we talked about your coach, Brian Levere. What, what makes him a great coach? So there's numerous things. I have numerous coaches. I have an SNC coach called Amy, Amy Crook. also have the, the national coach you mentioned on the intro, um, Kevin Smith. Um, so these people have been pivotal in making me who I am now. But Brian individually, uh, my first coach, I started when I was nine. He's 79 years, uh, 79 years old this year, so he's very old. Um, and he fought Lionel Rose back in the day, right? Correct. Fought Lionel Rose, Johnny Famishon. Amazing. Fought a draw with Johnny Famishon, actually. So um, he's a fantastic athlete, been involved in the sport for so long. 
Um, you mean he's just a great human as well. So he's taught me probably to have fun, self confidence. He's saved a lot of kids' lives. Like so many kids have come into that gym from broken homes and stuff like that, and have found a family, found a savior in Brian. And um, yeah, he's just a great man. How does he get the most out of you? Because it's it's you know I've got th- three sons and uh, and getting them to push themselves hard on the sporting field is always a challenge. How did he uh, get you to 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 give that huge commitment to the sport? I think like it was obviously there, like the desire there was there for me. Like what I've realised recently is probably one of my biggest motivations, which isn't a good one, is I didn't feel good enough. So I'm chasing this external validation, you know, to feel like I am good enough. And like, like I think Brian fed me with a lot of love, a lot of positivity. And these are things that I was searching for as a kid. Um, you know, so I think that's why I love him so much. The passion and the desire, that's probably me. He's just a person. He's the type of very old fashioned. If you don't, you don't show up and give 110%, he's not going to give you 110%. So every session, Every time I saw him, I would always be there, always be on time, always be early, always try my hardest. And he saw that, you know, so he, he invested more time into me. So um, he's the most dedicated person I've ever met. He never misses a session. Yeah, I've got to say, I've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast. Um, you're, I think, the first guest in a very long time who's shown up five minutes early for the interview. Uh, <laughs> are you normally a, a super punctual person? I pride myself on three things, mate. Punctuality, manners, and respect. They're three things I pride myself on and they cost nothing. And they go such a long way, I believe. Like, if I can try and instill that into some young people, you know what I mean? Just being five minutes early to something, showing that you're keen, enthusiastic, always showing respect for yourself, for other people, and always using manners saying thank you, please. Um, these things go such a long way, I think, in life. It's it's not everyone's image of uh, of a boxer. Uh, you ha- you have this theory that the world would be a better place if everyone did some uh, some combat sports. Uh, tell us about how more combat sports could make us a kind of a kind of population. I totally like, I'm, and I'm a massive advocate for it. I can totally understand the, the backlash from maybe boxing because of the head trauma and sports like that. But imagine integrating into late primary school and in high school like kids having to do um, like wrestling, judo, karate, like all the lessons they will learn, respect, they have to bow to their sensei, um, you can't wear your mat, you can't wear your shoes inside and, and, and some sports like that. Like there's so many things and rules that they would have to follow that I think would just teach them so many things about themselves and self-love, self-confidence. And I just really do think that it would just change the world. And I think now... You see some young people, they, they lack respect for authority and they lack respect for teachers. And, and I was like that too. But I think combat sport really taught me to respect myself and respect others. So let's go into some of your preparation for uh, Tokyo. Um, you were part of a, a program the, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport ran called the Gold Medal Ready Program. Uh, tell us about what you learned through that. That was honestly probably one of the biggest motivators or uh, not maybe motivators but one of the biggest things that helped me get get ready for, for the Tokyo Olympics so that was run with the Australian Army and past gold medal gold medalist gold medal alumni and we, they run us through heaps of different mental tasks physical tasks and they we debriefed it all together and all the things that come up throughout that process of um, what come up for us these voices in the head like no you can't continue the mental challenges that go through our head 
Because as athletes and in any high-performance environment, you put under so much stressful situations. So to get ready for it, debrief it, talk to the commando regiment who are on the front lines in war, probably the biggest high-stressful situation you can think of, and to debrief with them and understand them and their mindset, like I honestly believe it changed me for the better and I learned so much from it for sure. And you began then taking on a series of challenges, uh, doing doing some additional things and not doing some things. Uh, tell us about uh, some of that. Yeah, so the biggest thing I took out of that program was get comfortable being uncomfortable and the growth that you have as a human and as an athlete in getting uncomfortable and getting out of your comfort zone, it's only going to transform you and make you view things differently. So been doing it for two and a half years now. I've done things like karaoke where I couldn't take the piss, had to be full serious, um, wore makeup for a day, started ballet, had some really hard conversations, no talking for 48 hours, numerous other things. Um, and each one I have just learned different things from. So um, I've absolutely loved it. And as I mentioned before, mate, the growth for me as a human through doing this has just helped me grow as an athlete as well. Which has been the hardest? There's, I really struggle with the 48 hours no talking and the public reading. So they're probably the two that I really struggle with. And, of course, having really tough conversations with, say, my dad. That was on the list as well. I think as males, and I come from a bit of a country town, like having conversations are, are really tough sometimes. So they're the three that I really found challenging. Have you got other uh, challenges that are on the, uh, well, I don't know if you call it a bucket list, but on the, on, on the to-do <laughs> list? Yeah, so this month, I am, last month I did 13 hours straight on a stationary bike and that was really tough. And then this year, uh, this month, sorry, I'm going to do a full day meditation. So I'm going to break it into four hour blocks, meditate straight for four hours, have five to 10 minutes, be able to get a drink, go to the toilet, uh, maybe eat if I feel necessary, and then go back in. So three, four hour sets, so 12 hours all up. Uh, well, I've got a couple more for you if you need them. Uh, my, uh, my, guest, my guest last week was John Safran, and uh, I think the uh, two of the hardest things John has done is uh, uh, going to the mothers of his ex-girlfriends and, uh, and asking if he could kiss the mothers of his ex-girlfriends. And then... Oh, uh, wow, <laughs> uh, and then possibly a little less, uh, less emotionally painful, but maybe more physically painful... Uh, is uh, being crucified in the Philippines, and I know you've spent a bit of time in the Philippines. So, uh, uh, what, what do you think? What do you think about having uh, nails driven through your hands and feet? I asked John about it this morning just to check the safety, and he said it's. Um, you should essentially think of it as being um, like uh, an ear piercing. He said the nail hole is fairly small, and then the nail just pushes the uh, uh, the, the skin aside, and so long as you don't hit a bone, you're fine. Yeah, pretty pretty crazy when you think about some of the things humans have done to themselves and to others. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when you really think about it, isn't it? It just shows, though, the power of the mind. Yes. And if your mind is, like, strong enough, you could honestly withstand anything. You also uh, had visualisation as being a really important part of your preparation. Um, t tell me how you managed to visualise your, your, yourself at Tokyo and, and, and exactly what you visualised. Yeah, so Jess Fox, who was an Olympic gold medalist in kayaking, um, or canoe sailing or whatever it's called, um, she's fantastic. And me and her often talked about things, met her on the Gold Medal Ready program, and we often talked about things that we were doing to get prepared, and she helped me a lot with the visualisation. And I would just set aside time each day to um, to go through, like, it'd be everything, everything you can imagine about the Olympic Village, about 
waking up, seeing other athletes, everyone wearing a mask, getting on the bus, um, getting ready at the arena, walking into the ring, no crowd, cameras flickering. I mean, these are all the things that I would try and imagine and try and visualize. It really helped as well. I was fortunate enough to actually fight in the arena. So that was in 2019. I actually went to that arena in Japan, mm. fought in it, so I could really see it in my head. Um, and I was able to visualize, and I'll be I'm completely honest, I was able to visualize me standing on the podium, but I really struggled me standing in the middle. And I'm not going to lie about that. I would like go in and be able to visualize me on the podium, but then I would see myself in second or third position and I would have to open my eyes, like scratch it out, scratch it out and go back in and I wouldn't stop until I was in the middle. Um, but it just shows maybe deep down I thought um, my skill level isn't quite there yet. I've just got to work on a few things in 2024. Hopefully I can change. Was that about uh, where you were in general or about a specific opponent? I mean, you must have known that Andy Cruz was uh, the, the favourite for the gold. Yeah, so he is like pound for pound one of the best in, out of all the boxes there. So I knew it was a massive challenge. I've always just wanted to fight him. Like I'm the type mm. of human that I would rather fight the best than fight 10 of the worst. I want to fight the best because that's the only way you get better. That's the only way you improve. So I knew it was a massive challenge. Deep down, I don't know if I fully believed I could do it. I was trying to tell myself, hey, you can do this, you can do this, but maybe just not yet. You know, I'm not that experienced compared to him. Uh, three years time now I fought him there were some things that were working in that fight so I can evolve them get better um, and fingers crossed I can change the outcome what is it about uh, Andy Cruz that makes him a great fighter what do you admire about he, him yeah so I think the best athletes in the world are the ones that aren't thinking and it's just letting it happen naturally so I think he just let it happen you mean and I was thinking about tactics that coach was giving me because to be honest, I'm not naturally as gifted as him. Not saying that he doesn't work hard because he would work so hard. But like, he's got a lot of natural ability, flowy reactions, quick. But like, he wasn't thinking. So I was already two or three steps behind because I was thinking about things too much. And your your visualization. Um, how did you do that in a practical sense? Did you set aside some time each week to do visualization, or how did how did you build that into your training? Yeah. So I was every Sunday. I would always sit and reflect on what my week looks like and I'd always set aside time once a day, especially in that last 10 weeks where I was visualizing prior to those 10 weeks, maybe once a week, once or twice a week. Um, but those last 10 weeks, it was daily, closing my eyes, laying in my bed, sitting on a chair, and just seeing it. I also had, and I really loved that I did this because I, I found it so helpful. I had five alarms set each day and they would be gone off at any time um, daily and I'd have to get up and I'd say, am I living in my king energy? And then I'll build myself up with love, positivity. I mean, I'm enough, I'm strong, I'm Olympic gold medalist. And then I would also visualize myself standing on the podium or getting the decision and stuff like that. So they really helped me throughout that last 10 weeks of preparation. And did you did you feel that that was how how did you feel you were different um, from when when you were fighting in Tokyo um, compared to to when you you won your Commonwealth Games gold? What had what had evolved in 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 your your skill as a fighter? I think naturally I matured as a human. You know what I mean? So I often I didn't mature as an athlete too. Um, I hadn't fought eighteen months prior due to COVID due to the Olympic yeah prior to the Olympics sorry. So I was like, that was playing on mind for sure. But I think 
I know I've just done a lot of one percenters and they when you commit to yourself and you make a deal with yourself like I cut out caffeine or I made a deal that I meditate daily or journal daily when you commit to yourself things like that you know what I mean it's like it just built me a more and more positivity so I felt once I got to the Olympics I was completely ready for whatever was going to get thrown at me so I think I just did a lot more one percenters um, obviously focus on my skill and improving that but that naturally happens as a fighter we evolve we change we box differently so um, I'll box different in three years time completely and what's it like when you uh, when you get a hard hit in a in a boxing match do you do you use that is that knock you does it kind of psychologically knock you around how, how do you you know there's the old cliche that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face how do you <laughs> deal with being literally punched in the face when you've got a plan for the match yeah that's um like i think it's just one of those things though it's our sport it's like um it's no different us getting punched in the face than it is a baseball guy hitting a ball you know what i mean it's just like it's part of the game and we train really hard and we do a lot of sparring, do a lot of preparing to make sure our body is prepared for what's going to happen. And um, when it happens, of course, there is some punches that hurt. Not It's probably 99% don't hurt. There is that 1%. Body shots especially, they're the worst. Um, but head shots, usually you can handle them all right. Um, you just got to be smart about it and not like get emotional. Once you get hit, you got to be smart. Hey, I'm going to get it back soon. No rush. You know, be patient um, and trust in your ability. Dumb question. Why does being hit in the body hurt more than being hit in the head? Uh, I think most boxers would agree with this, but I think just the body shots. I, the first time I ever got dropped was when I was about 14 in the gym down in Lauderdale. Got dropped, got hit in the body by one beautiful right rip, and then I went, and then he went straight over to the other side and hit me right on the other side. So body shots are just worse. They cut the wind out of you. And if you can constantly get body shots, body damage, like in the fight, you just notice your energy, your power, low and uh, worsens, you know what I mean? Everything just like becomes slower, harder. I mean, body shots really take things out of you for sure. How do you think about this sport, Harry? I mean, there's, uh, you've often said that, uh, that you don't go in there with a sense of malice, of hurting the other person. Um, but, you know, ultimately that's, that's sort of what the, what the sport is about, right? How do you, how do you envisage a boxing match? Yeah, I think there is definitely people out there who are emotional fighters and that works for them. Like I know me, if I'm emotional, which I have been once or twice in the past in a fight, it doesn't end well for me. Like my emotions get the better of me. I really got to be patient and, and it's a sport really. It's just high-paced high chess. That's all it is. Is Boxing and combat sports is just fast-paced, high-level um, chess. That's all it is. Um, you're making moves, they're making moves, you're counteracting their moves, you're constantly, it's tactical. Um, so when I'm in there, I just try my best to be really smart, really present, let it be kind of natural and instinctual. I do a lot of training. Of course, there are times I have to think about what I'm doing, but half the time I just let it happen. Um, no emotion. You know, we're there to do a job, we're there to fight, um, and they're going to rip my head off if I don't try and rip their head off. Yeah, and you saw that that class and the way in which you you held the ring ropes at the end of the uh, the, the the match with uh, with Cruz. Uh, you know, it's it was that sense of classiness where you were you were engaged in a sport rather than engaged in trying to do harm to another human being. Yeah, that's that's half the reason why I really like fighting for Australia because I do think amateur boxing is a lot more of a sport. You're representing your country three rounds. You wear bigger gloves than the pros. 
Um, there's a lot less damage, but then when you turn pro, it's a bit more of a business and it's a bit uglier. You know what I mean? And that's why I really like fighting amateur because, to be honest, I just love boxing. I love the art of it. I love getting in there. I love what it's taught about myself, self-love, self-confidence, hard work, dedication, resilience. Um, so I really enjoyed those aspects of it. Of course, when I turn pro, I hope I don't change. I hope I still lift the ropes. I think I will because that's part of my personality. It's part of who I am. But yeah, that's why I really like amateur over professional. Yeah, and I would have thought too with pro, because you're preparing to, to meet a specific opponent, uh, it would be harder to take the malice out of it uh, because your visualisation would all be about fighting a particular person rather than being in the ring generally. Of course, and you see on like old movies like Rocky, every time you'd fight someone, you'd put a photo of them in there. And I've done that before. Mm. Um, you put a photo of them on your mirror and you're like, oh, I'm going to get you, man. Like, you have to psych yourself up because the reality is, it is battle. You're going in there to do combat with someone else. And the best thing about it, though, you watch big fights and the utmost respect is given to both athletes 99% of the time after the fight. They give each other a massive hug and cuddle and they respect each other. And that's what I really love about the sport. Boxing's now changed, and so you can see live scores through through the match rather than just finding out the result at the end. How does that change things? In the Andy Cruz fight, for instance, like I knew that I had lost the fight, so I lost the first two rounds, and I knew that. So at the end of each round, we saw the scores, and I could have made, I could have danced around in the third round and not got hit and just lost the fight and given up. But I'm like, no way am I doing that, mate. Like I'll, I'm never going to die wondering. I went in there, mate, in the third round. I was on the front foot, which he loves a lot more, and he definitely hit me with a lot more punches in the third round. But I went in there, and I'll die on my sword because I tried my hardest in that third round. I was trying to get a lucky punch. Definitely didn't get one. Um, but I'll never die wondering. I'm proud of myself that I went on the front foot. I tried to be aggressive, tried to take the fight to him. Um, but he kind of liked that more, to be honest, and hit me with more punches. <laughs> Is there an advantage to being a Southpaw? A hundred percent. I think in most sports, left-handed people definitely have a little edge. Um, I don't know what it is. I think maybe there's something different in our brain, potentially. I'm not too sure. Definitely no scientists. Um, but I definitely do think in boxing in particular, it definitely helps to be left And who do you look to as, uh, as role models and athletes, both uh, those, those gone by and uh, those who are current and currently out there? I'm curious not only about your boxing heroes, but also about your heroes in other sports. Yeah, I think growing up, I've had a massive involvement with the Reach Foundation. So Jimmy Steins was massive, AFL grammar medalist. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2008, I believe. Um, Shane Crawford was someone who was pivotal growing up. Really liked what he was doing for the community and the way he held himself. Jason Wadley, who's a really close mate of mine, I've learned a lot from him. He also went to the Olympics for boxing in 2016. Um, LeBron James, you never hear him in the news for anything bad. He's been given millions and millions of dollars. Cristiano Ronaldo does a lot for the community and a lot for charity. Like people like this, I take a lot from Lydia Lasilla. She won a, um, a gold medal in 2010 Olympics, Winter Olympics. Um, she's massive as well. So there's so many good athletes, especially Australian athletes, um, I mean, that I idolise as well. So we're pretty lucky, mate, to live in this country, I reckon. We certainly are. And uh, what about if you, if you look back through boxing history? Uh, do, do people like Muhammad Ali uh, serve as an inspiration? Of course, uh, I've got a, I won't show it on camera, but I've got a full leg tag, um, leg, leg sleeve with all my favourite fighters. So, Muhammad Ali is one of them, Roy Jones Jr., Sugar Ray Leonard, Andre Ward, Vasily Lomachenko. These are all my favourite fighters. And 
Muhammad Ali, what he stood for outside the ring, is what I admire the most, you know, man. And, and that's what made him such an amazing athlete. He was obviously a fantastic boxer, but what he did outside of boxing as well was really what made him great. Are there countries that have particular boxing styles that you're seeking to learn from? Oh, 100%. The, the South American, very flowy. They do a lot of dancing there, so it's very cultural. They're dancing, flowy, movie. Eastern Europeans are a lot more strict, rigid, strong, very grounded with their have a really good technique, though. Um, but they're all, they're all like really good. And the best thing about combat sport, you don't need a body type. You know, that's, I think other sports, sometimes basketball really helps with you. Six foot six. Boxing, you can honestly be whatever size. As long as you have the hunger, desire, and passion, you can succeed. You do have to get, it, uh, get under your weight, though. Uh, do you find making weight is, uh, is, is hard? I used to make 60 kilos, so now I'm at 63. 60 was a big challenge. Almost had to sell a bit of my soul to the devil to get there, but um, you know, it was part of the game, and, and I was young, brazen. You think, you get, you, know, you think you're invincible back then. I was 20 years old. Um, how tall so, uh, are you? Uh, six, uh, five foot ten, five foot eleven. Yeah, okay. So that's uh, that's that's yeah. pretty pretty low BMI there. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely wasn't much left. I'm pretty tall for my weight division. So, but it is it's all part of it. I felt really good at the Olympics of '63. I'll probably stick there for for a few years at least. And do you do you do it by dehydrating? I mean, that seems to be the standard way in which people get uh, get down to weight. Yeah, so I've definitely, through experience and through trial and error, I've worked out really what works for me. So I don't cut out water until the last week. Like, and even now, I'm still drinking it, of course, but just limiting it, limiting my food. But it's like a steady, a steady progress. Like, I'll sit five kilos out, 10 weeks, 10 weeks to go, and each week I'm moving 500 grams kilo, or I'm just moving each week just slowly but surely closer. And then the last two kilos, you know, that's all water weight, kilo and a half, that's all water weight. So you can get rid of that and put it back on. I have to ask you about ballet. Uh, what was, uh, you, you didn't just sort of take a lesson or two, right? You've actually uh, joined a, a proper uh, ballet troupe? <laughs> yeah, I have, mate. I uh, absolutely loved it. So I started this school in Melbourne's East, Mitchum. Uh, it's called Alance, and I really enjoy it. Um, it's really good for beginners there, and they take in adults, which is fantastic. I've always wanted to dance. I was really uh, moved by movies like Center Stage growing up, Stick It, which is a gymnastics movie, Bring It On. I really loved movies like that, and I was just really scared to sort of tell people that I wanted to dance, I wanted to do ballet, but I finally built the courage, and mum got me a couple of tickets to, to take a few classes. So fell in love with it, mate. Been doing it since 2019. Obviously, COVID hasn't helped, but... Um, I'll definitely be doing ballet for a long time, I think. And what does it give you? So as I mentioned, I'm saying it's for boxing, which it definitely does help because strength and power through the legs, the technique, they're always on their toes a little bit. Um, as I mentioned, the power they generate through their legs. There's a lot of rules. And I really like discipline and rules. Can't turn my back to the bar. Can't have chewing gum in my mouth. Can't have my watch on. There's just so many things they get told off for, which I really like. And uh, what made you paint your nails at the Olympics? So I felt growing up, mate, there was numerous things. And I think even still now I play the role a little bit, but I'm getting a lot better. Like society pushes so much on us as humans about how a male is supposed to act, how a gar side is supposed to act, how someone from my area is supposed to act. Mm. And I just like, I often played that role 110% and I'm still struggling to navigate through it and be myself, but 
it's like almost my whole life I just felt like sick in the stomach because I knew it wasn't my authentic self um, and I'm getting better at trying to showcase that to young people you can be whatever you want to be you don't have to fit the mold your parents pushing you or your friends pushing you as long as it feels right to you and you're not hurting anyone else you can honestly do whatever you want so you were, uh, you're doing all these visualisation exercises for an Olympic gold medal. You brought home Australia's first Olympic boxing medal in a generation. Uh, do you consider that a success or a failure? Like, how does it play in your head? Um, to be honest, mate, I consider that a failure for sure. And I think as high-performance athletes, um, you know, it's, there's two sources. As high-performance athletes, we need to have that mindset. I believe if we start lowering our bar of what we think is possible, then we lower our capabilities. You mean, I can win an Olympic gold medal. You mean, and I need to think that. Everyone needs to think that they can be the absolute best, the pinnacle, or else you should like, go play something for fun. You mean, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to be the best. I want to be the best in that world. And um, I need to have that mindset. It was a failure. I can do better. I'm going to try my hardest to do better. But... As well, I'm proud how I handled myself in my preparation. I gave everything to my preparation. I couldn't have done anything else. I need to evolve my boxing, which I'm going to do. Um, I was proud of myself how I handled myself in the ring and outside of the ring at the Olympics. Um, so there are things that I'm proud of, for sure. The result, I can do better. You set your standards impressively high. Uh, what does the next three years between now and Paris uh, entail for you? I think now we can turn professional and um, and also fight amateur. So just got to figure those out. If I can do that, definitely going to try my best to manage both because you can't eat medals and you can't eat trophies. And, and as an amateur athlete, it's, it's actually pretty hard financially. One of my mates now have a trade. I don't have a certificate. I don't have um, a degree. I'm just sort of just wanted to box my whole life. So all my mates now are starting to buy houses and, and settle down. And you need to start, I need to start thinking about, mate, what am I going to do when I'm 40, 50? So... The next three years, mate, I'll definitely be boxing to number one, but I'm also going to be trying to put things in place to make sure I'm set up for after boxing as well. So let me finish with a couple of questions I ask all of my interviewees. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, I got asked this question today, actually. Um, I wouldn't give him any advice. I would just give him a hug. Um, I think for me growing up, mate, I just the reason why I was attracted to my coach, I'm not saying my parents are great people, the most loving people ever, best parents. Uh, but I was searching for love um, from friends, from my coach. I was searching for it a lot. Didn't feel didn't feel enough, as I mentioned before. So I'd probably just give him a hug and say, like, you know, I'll not even say anything. You know, just like know that things are going to happen. You know what I mean? And just hug him and be there for him. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Ooh. Um, I think, as you can imagine, mate, coming from the end of the train line, Lillardale and Victoria, um, there's some, some, some cultural beliefs here, I think. Um, you know what I mean? There's some old school beliefs, I'm not going to get into them, but there are definitely some things that like were ingrained in me early by society, and there are definitely things that I'm definitely challenging now and, and, and I do not agree with. So, just more so the ideas about life and equality and, um, and stuff like that. There are definitely things that early on, like I was four because I didn't know any different and then I grew up and I totally understand the world a little bit better now. Yeah, and you've turned into a bloke who I understand considered wearing a, a dress to the opening ceremony of the uh, of the Olympics until uh, it was 
talked out of you partly on the grounds that they might offend transgender people. That's that's a pretty extraordinary thing to be contemplating. Yeah, of course, mate. That I think I made the right decision. Didn't want to take the line right away from the rest of the team. But like my intentions are good. I just want to like showcase like, you can just do and be whatever you want to be as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Like I just feel like there's so much pushing by society about how we're supposed to act and um, all these like gender roles and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, mate, obviously if it feels right, it feels natural to you. Like, who's to say it's not the right thing to do? No one really knows why we're here anyway. When are you most happy? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it would be when I'm doing something active, definitely for sure boxing. It's like meditation for me. I, um, the whole world stops, time slows down. What aspect of boxing, as in uh, being sparring against an opponent, training? What, what, which, which bit of the practice do you love the most? I've definitely, it would definitely be the sparring for sure. That's definitely the time where you're the most vulnerable, um, but you're also like, I don't know, that's everything's heightened because someone else is competing against someone else. So that's definitely the time where I feel most alive. Um, I just love doing physical exercise as well, to be honest. Like, love my heart burning. I love pushing my like myself to my limits and like saying I'm going to run 10k and then running 11. Like, I love doing stuff like that and, and mm. building myself up as much as possible. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, physical exercise is definitely up there, mate. I think one big thing that I did about two, three years ago, and I'm happy I did it prior to COVID. Um, was remove uh, like the news outlets on social media and stuff like that. Like just being really conscious about who I'm hanging around with, what I'm seeing online, because these things, even if we're not taking them in consciously, subconsciously we are 100% taking them in. So there's a saying: you surround yourself with five millionaires, you're going to become the six. You surround yourself with five idiots, you're going to become the six. So these are just like you know, just really conscious about who I spend my time with, who I'm with, and and and, and what I'm seeing online. So you've cut out all kinds of things. Do you have any guilty pleasures left? Oh, don't we all, mate, for sure. There is one. I'm no, I'm no perfect human, but I think there's a book called The Relentless by Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant's uh, mental, strength and, uh, mental strength coach. And he talks about how we all naturally, as high-performance people, whether it's an athlete or anyone in a high-performance environment, we all have a dark side. And it's a side, you know, we all have that for sure. There's all things that I'm trying to navigate and trying to understand about myself. I'm 24 years old. I don't expect me to have it all together now, but I'm definitely understanding you know, myself. We definitely all have advice and stuff like that. But I'm being a lot kinder to myself. And, and when that stuff happens, just being able to like navigate it, not like you're an idiot. You know, that makes sense. Being able to navigate it and, and then slowly change um, a habit, I guess. And finally, Harry, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Ooh. I'd have to say the Reach Foundation, to be honest. Um, they come into my life when I was 15, 16, really at a crossroads with boxing and, and, and my mates were going down a path of playing up and doing what teenagers do. And um, through the whole journey of being involved with Reach, I've, I've really learned a lot about myself and about the world and, and, and challenging things. I'm really curious now and like, I try my best to be curious but take away the judgment, like why are they doing that? And, and I'm, I'm a fence sitter with most, in most topics in life and I try and understand both sides of the story and I think Reach has definitely instilled that in me and, and, and because we're all just trying to navigate through life. There's no right or wrong answer to be honest. We're all just trying to do the best we can with what we know, I think. So, yeah, definitely the Reach Foundation. Harry Garside, boxer, 
ballet dancer and curious soul. Thanks so much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Ben Pronk and Taylor Harris. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.